And when we aired that, uh, the first of our report and that on the evening news, we got a note from the Army Secretary. They're going to put out a video statement. And we said, in response to our reporting, really? Yes, <laughs> he's going to put out. And, and so that's the quickest I've ever seen the taking of responsibility and saying this is unacceptable. And I said, well, let's see if we can get the first interview with the Army Secretary. And that's we, we were at the Pentagon yesterday to speak with uh, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy. And what he has announced today is that he will fire or suspend 14 Fort Hood commanders 14. and other leaders, including Major General Scott Eflin, who was in charge of Fort Hood when Vanessa Guillen went missing. Welcome to the National Defense. The National Defense is dedicated to the men and women who serve our country in active duty, our veterans, and their families. We're here for you. God bless you. We love you. On each episode, we look for people and stories with some connection to these heroes. I'm Randy Miller. Hey, the National Defense is now on Instagram. Follow us at Instagram.com forward slash the National Defense. Nora O'Donnell is the anchor of the CBS Evening News and a correspondent for 60 Minutes. She's the former co-anchor of CBS This Morning, chief White House correspondent for CBS News, and a substitute host for CBS's Sunday morning show, Face the Nation. She has been doing some incredible reporting on the rampant problem of sexual assault in the military. We're very excited to have her back on the National Defense. Nora, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. It's so great to talk to you again. And I just have to say, your reporting on this subject has been sensational. I mean, you've been on this now for about a year and a half, right? That's right, Randy. For a year and a half, our investigative team here at CBS News, we've been pouring through Defense Department documents, uh, Army, U.S. Army documents, cases, court-martial cases, all kinds of reports filed by alleged victims of sexual assault and abuse, harassment. And what we found is what appears to be not only systemic harassment that exists, but also retaliation for those soldiers that we spoke with. And we spoke with more than two dozen survivors when they actually went to go report it, as you're supposed to do. Sometimes misconduct happens when they reported it. Then they were then retaliated against. Mm. And I think that was one of the most difficult things to hear. We even spoke to a set of parents, two sets of parents, I should say, that when their daughters reported their assaults, they were retaliated against and they ended up dying by suicide as Uh. a result. And so what really and then I think. What really brought this into focus was the murder of Vanessa Guillen in May in Fort Hood. And the attention by some of uh, the reporting by Maria Villarreal here at CBS and other correspondents really put a laser focus on this. And because there was such a social media campaign, that hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen, about what happened to her, the Army took notice. And so what we saw today is the Secretary of the Army taking some of the most comprehensive and disciplinary action that the U.S. Army has ever taken. Yeah, this is unprecedented to say the least, uh, Nora. Gracious of you to give credit to uh, Vanessa Guillen's campaign, and, and obviously that was the, the touchstone of this. But I think your reporting, and especially when you got these women and men together and interviewed them and talked about the retaliation and the, the sexual assaults, first of all, let me ask you, how did you get them to open up to you? Because this is something that, uh, you know, if if their family has been threatened for opening up, to something like this? How did you gain their trust? You know, it's a great question. And a lot of the credit really goes uh, to the two producers who are part of our investigative team, Megan Tui and Kristen Steve. 
uh, you know, they spend a lot of time talking to victims. And some people say, you know what, I've already been retaliated against. I don't certainly don't want to go on camera. I don't want to admit right. what is one of the most difficult things that has ever happened to me in my life. You know, and then hopefully I think that many of them were able to sit with me because they trusted us with CBS News. They trusted that we would tell their story in a fair way. And to be honest, I think a number of the ones that we spoke with were just so fed up with the system. And we're so courageous to be able to say, you know what, I have to do something to save other men and women from what I've been through. And, you know, it's a privilege to tell their story. It really is. And, you know, I, you know, I grew up in a military family. Right. I have uh, members of my family who serve in the military. And this is not, this is not emblematic of the military I know. You know, right. discipline is important. Treating one another with care and kindness, being the greatest fighting force in the world. And so there are some bad apples out there, you know, just like in any business, there can be some bad apples, some criminals who are doing this. But the fact that the army is not holding them accountable or enforcing discipline right. and protecting their own, that when it, that's when it becomes a real problem. And this is where I think journalism can play a role in exposing abuse, corruption and wrongdoing. And it's really fascinating that the U.S. Army taking notice and uh, the Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy saying, you know, discipline is number one, trust is number one. and really laying it all out in a report that's now public for anyone to read. And just to kind of elaborate on that, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy will, has said he will fire or suspend a large number of officers and enlisted soldiers at Fort Hood in this disciplinary action. Nora, this doesn't happen, I don't think, a lot, especially with an anchor situation where you do this kind of reporting and you see some immediate results. How does that feel? It was incredible. I mean, when we, when we, pub, when we first published the results of our investigation, you know, we got word. I, and, you know, again, like I said, it took a year and a half. And then it right. took weeks and weeks of interviews. And then, you know, we held it until after the election to make sure that people would, because everyone was focused on the election. And, you know, many of the victims of advocates and victims themselves are saying, you know, when are we going to see this? We want change. And when we aired that, uh, the first of our reports and that on the evening news, we got a note from the Army Secretary. They're going to put out a video statement. And we said, in response to our reporting, really? Yes, <laughs> he's going to put out. And, and so that's the quickest I've ever seen the taking of responsibility and saying this is unacceptable. And I said, well, let's see if we can get the first interview with the Army Secretary. And that's we, we were at the Pentagon yesterday to speak with uh, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy. And what he has announced today is that he will fire or suspend 14 Fort Hood commanders 14. and other leaders, including Major General Scott Efflant, who was in charge of Fort Hood when Vanessa Guillen went missing. And that's, you know, that's some pretty aggressive action by the <laughs> Army Secretary. And then there's a number of steps. And I actually, just by a source of mine, I was forwarded apparently a message about this, in, this uh, independent investigation done by the Army about what happened in Fort Hood. The findings have been emailed to every single member of the U.S. Army. Wow. Today. I got it. Someone forwarded it to me. And it was a mass email that got sent out. In other words, they want to say from the very top, unacceptable behavior. Yes. This is not acceptable. Commanders are going to be held accountable. And so um, hopefully that will lead to change. Well, and that, that's that how those it should, courageous that victims that. Yeah. That's what you would expect uh, from the military. You'd, you'd think the military would be the angriest about this. But uh, I want to ask you sure. about the, the uh, Department of Defense put out a report, said they're concerned over the revelations from the annual report. Um, 
Navy Rear Admiral Ann Burkhart, director of the DOD's Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office, said the military had made progress on combating the crime over the past decade, but the uh, statistics show sexual assault rates increased for women and stayed the same with men. This was out in May of 2019. That's, that's, mm-hmm. I just can't comprehend that. That, that was public in May of 2019. And it took, well, and, all of this and you digging in for something to happen because it's always been bubbling under the surface, don't you think? It has been. And look, this was the, this has been a problem in the U.S. military for decades. Fifteen years ago, the U.S. military tried to address it with some pushing from Congress. They created in the U.S. Army what they call the SHARP program, the Sexual Harassment Assault Response right. Prevention Program. That's SHARP. And um, so, you know, we're talking about tens and tens of millions of dollars spent to hire these civilian victim advocates to, to look after this. And what the report, the, the independent review by the Army Secretary today found was that, in fact, at Fort Hood, there was a, quote unquote, permissive environment for mm. sexual assault and sexual harassment, that there was also, quote, a pervasive lack of confidence in the SHARP program and an unacceptable lack of knowledge. I mean, it goes on and on. It it blames commanders. And it's a pretty devastating report. The transparency, I also think, is pretty important, right? Is to call people out and the accountability is is pretty important. And I think what you'll have now is other leaders, other commanders on notice that if they allow this to continue, they too will be fired or suspended. And that's setting a tone. Oh, that's saying a ton. And and Nora, when you looked into the eyes of the Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, what was your sense? Are, are you when when you were interviewing him, did you get the sense that he was absolutely outraged and this and he will follow through and make this happen? I did. You know, he's a former Army Ranger himself. Right. You know, he was there. He was there in Afghanistan right after 9/11 in Kandahar, you know, before there were big forces out there. You know, he served in the trenches along with others. I think he cares deeply about the U.S. Army. He is a protege of Secretary Bob Gates. Bob Gates, of course, famously held people accountable when there was the Walter Reed crisis, um, when there was that uh, nuclear warhead crisis with the U.S. Air Force. He held a number of people accountable. So I think he's from the Gates School, the Secretary Gates School, which is that you know, leadership is in part about transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that he really wanted to act here and not ignore the problem. And I think he deserves some credit for that, certainly, you know, not ignoring a problem. And even though, you know, look, he's a political appointee, right? It's right. likely that whoever is the new secretary of defense and Joe Biden will put somebody else in as the, as the army secretary, a different sort of political appointee. So to do this while he's leaving, you know, and accepting all of the recommendations of this independent board that did this review of what happened at Fort Hood uh, is striking. Well, and part of that is uh, 70 recommendations, right, for moving forward on this? Mm-hmm. So, 70 recommendations. It's about a 140, 150-page um, report about what to do differently. And, you know, it's a whole mix of things. And again, this is really just about uh, what they found at Fort Hood. I mean, right, some of the things right. they found also, they be- they believe that the number of sexual assaults have been underreported at Fort Hood. They also, you know, they talk to a number of soldiers. They say 50% of the soldiers don't have confidence in their commanders. Uh, many of them said they they were afraid to actually report 
instances of sexual abuse and harassment. And so, you know, you can't have a culture of fear when it comes to that. And um, we are still expecting, I should note, one more report specifically um, about Vanessa Ginn and what happened to her. You know, there was her family has said that she was harassed and that she was about to file a complaint. Right. And then she was murdered in the armory by this uh, this fellow soldier named Robinson, who she was killed by a hammer and then was later dismembered and disposed of. Mm. And there's still a lot of details on that case. And so that report is still coming. And I think uh, that may open uh, people's eyes about what just happened there, because the the, the Circumstances of that were, of course, so gruesome and so troubling and really worrisome to so many women who serve in the U.S. military and their families. Yes, and, and I know that there's an I am Vanessa Guillen bill in Congress. Do you know what the status of that is? I do. That's right. Uh, it has, uh, I believe, over 100 co-sponsors the last time I, I checked. It has not moved forward for a vote. One of the things that it would do is it would actually make sexual assault a crime within the military. It should be a crime. It should be a crime. Um, yeah, I know. I know. And harassment. Um, so it would strengthen some of that. I think one of the things, too, that wants to be done, which the military has resisted, is they do want to have there to be an independent prosecutor. That's part of this congressional bill, is there's somebody independent outside the chain of command that could hear these complaints or at least review these complaints. Because based on our reporting, And this is with one of the sharp victims advocates who's now a whistleblower described to us. Part of the problem is in the U.S. military, it's like a family. And the commander in some ways is like a father figure. So when one of you or someone who serves under you, you know, he says, well, this person raped me. You say, well, John couldn't have been a rapist. I mean, he's such a good guy. He's, you know, he's my he's the guy who drives me around or he's the guy who's leading up this new unit. He seems like such a good guy. He can't be a rapist. And so there's an there's an inherent bias there, right? And so you need an independent outside prosecutor, some people argue, in order to look at these cases in a more fulsome way. I just wonder if some of these folks that are going to be fired or suspended will face any criminal charges because, you know, the people that I've talked to today about this, every one of them says, why aren't they going to prison? I mean, one thing to, to be fired or, or suspended, but why wouldn't they go to prison? Well, there's a, a due process, of course, sure. also in the military. And, you know, as you know, when you're fired in the U.S. military, that doesn't mean you're kicked out of the U.S. military. Right. They're fired from their current command, their current command post. And so that's why some have been fired. So they're not going to be in charge of Fort Hood, for example, or another or another base um, or in suspended. So that but they did note Secretary McCarthy did note today that some of this is being passed on for criminal review. Good. And so, you know, that process takes time. Nora, what would have happened if you had not dug into this, if CBS had not dug into this and stayed on it? Would would we be having this conversation today? You know, I do credit, I do credit um, the journalists at CBS News for really shining a light um, on Vanessa Guillen. I, I do think that that was the tipping point. Her murder, um, her family's advocacy, really, to bring attention to her murder. Um, uh, The journalist that first said, you know, including Maria Villarreal here at CBS, when I talked to her today, she said, you know, I pitched this story a couple times and people kept saying, some of the producers kept saying, you know, I don't know if we want to cover this story. It's just one soldier, you Mm -hmm. know, and 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 
the attention, and then that just steamrolled. That's the power of the press. It's the power of journalism. Because once people heard about Vanessa Guillen, that hashtag took off like lightning. Yes. Hashtag, I am Vanessa Guillen. I'm like her. I've been harassed. I've been assaulted. And I think that's really what, what caused the Army to take notice, as well as what are these other incidents at Fort Hood that are just, you know, when they were searching for Vanessa again, they found the remains of another soldier right. who had been AWOL, who had been declared AWOL, and is now there's a homicide investigation on that. So there has been um, rampant misconduct, uh, criminal felonies uh, committed by soldiers on and off the base. So there's there's a larger cultural and command problem at Fort Hood. And if it hadn't been for the reporting surrounding Vanessa Guillen and her family, um, we wouldn't be at this point today. I think the one thing that the Army can learn through all this is you don't want to mess with Nora O'Donnell. You do not want to mess, again, <laughs> you do not want to mess with Nora O'Donnell. So... I think, you know, the point has been made. Nora, listen, I can't thank you enough for doing what you're doing, and especially with your military background and with your family. they got to be so proud of, of, of what you've done, and, and certainly we are. Thank you so much for staying on this. Thank you, Randy. And let's just all keep in our thoughts and prayers the, the victims of sexual assault and harassment, their families. It is one of the loneliest and most painful things that they can go through. Absolutely. I think we all agree that the U.S. military, the U.S. Army, really the greatest place in the world. And we want to make sure that, you know, the greatest Americans can serve in the military without this type of abuse. Absolutely. And also I want to thank you for your calm <laughs> because you have that unique ability to deliver some, uh, some devastating news with a, a very calm presence. And uh, that is duly noted. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, you know, I do think a part of that is, um, because I think people want that when they when they hear the news. I yes. also think it's part of how I grew up. You know, I mean, my dad served um, thirty years in the U.S. Army. He was he was drafted during the Vietnam War and then stayed in. And when he retired in two thousand two, he said, "I'm pretty sure I'm the last conscript in the U.S. Army." And but my dad <laughs> always my dad always led certainly at work and at home with really and he's a doctor. You know, really with just these are the facts. Let's deliver it in an unemotional way. You know, let let my patients or, you know, the people who are under my command deal with those facts. And so I really do credit in some ways, you know, my parents' military service with giving me that sort of calm under fire because that's that's how we spent my time growing up. Sure. You know, in the midst of, of a lot of difficulty and a lot of decision making and knowing people, you know, living around other people who were sent off to war or had to make difficult decisions. And you got to be resourceful. You got to pivot. You got to be ready to go. And uh, <laughs> certainly Colonel O'Donnell kind of steered the ship on that. And as you, as you mentioned, he was a doctor. The army sent him to Johns Hopkins university, right? That's right. Well, my dad, uh, my dad is from uh, Staten Island and he actually did a residency at Johns Hopkins university. Um, and that was his, in, I believe, in, in um, preventive medicine. So mostly he did all his work in preventive medicine, which is known in the Navy as, as public health. But he also did his residency in infectious diseases. So he did a lot with um, the Gulf War illness because he served in the first Gulf War. So wow. Um, wow. You know, that's kind of how I grew up. And it just so happens now it's great to have a dad who's an infectious disease doctor. Oh, man. And now I've got him on. Yeah, I've got him on speed dial. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's going on with. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> hey, dad, should, should we know this about coronavirus? Right. What about this? You've, yeah, you've, so, never, uh, you've never talked to your dad uh, that much in your life, I'll bet. 
<laughs> yes, I mean, as a resource, exactly. You know, hey, we're reading this. Does right. it sound right to you? Or, you well, know, how long will it take us to get a vaccine? You know, so he's been in a, a, a tremendous resource. You know, and you guys, uh, you, you lived in some really unusual places. I mean, in the military, you're going to move around a lot. But uh, you went from, see if I get this straight, from Washington to San Antonio and then in Seoul, South Korea. That's right. Yeah, one other stop in in between. I actually was born at Walter Reed. Um, really, I was born. I was. I was born at Walter Reed, and which is pretty incredible because that's where my father then, after a number of tours of duty, ended his career, and it's actually where my sister is now, who's an army surgeon, is now at um, Bethesda Walter Reed Army oh, wow. Medical Institute. There, so I know it, because it's a come full circle. So I was born at Walter Reed and in 1974, and then we were transferred to Germany where my dad was the chief of preventive medicine in Lonstuhl. Okay. And um, of course, which is still a big hospital, as you know, uh, there in Lonstuhl. Then we came back to San Antonio and Brook Army Medical Center. And I grew up mostly in San Antonio. I was able to do most of elementary, middle, and high school in San Antonio. And then we did a two-year stint while I was in middle school in Seoul, South Korea, where we lived on Yongsan Garrison, which was really interesting. You know, I bet. I recently, yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I went, recently went back there 30 years later for a piece on when I was the anchor of CBS this morning. And of course, my old house, still there. <laughs> still. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. Oh. I mean, I'm sure they've updated the plumbing maybe, but yeah. <laughs> it still looks the same on the outside. <laughs> so what are, what are your memories? Uh, we're talking to Nora O'Donnell, uh, CBS uh, anchor of uh, CBS Evening News. Uh, what are your memories of Seoul? Now you were like, what, what, 10 years old when you were there? I was, I was, it was the 19, 1984, 85. We were in Seoul, South Korea. I can remember Ronald Reagan coming to visit in Seoul, South Korea, and that being a very big deal. Sure. I remember, um, you know, riding my bike around uh, the base. I remember going to middle school there. And I also remember, you know, going with a friend on a flight to visit Guam. You know, that, oh, was, wow. that was like considered a vacation. You could then take a military flight for, I don't remember what they charged, you know, dependents, like 10 or $20 right. to go to Guam. And that was kind of like the only vacation I had. But then my father took some leave after, and then we traveled around as a family and got to go to Thailand and Hong Kong. And then, of course, I loved Asia. And I still love Asia to this day, and I still have a deep fascination with, with, um, with the Korean Peninsula, and certainly what happens in North Korea. So it really was very much, I think, a formative time, and it was also really, you know, the two years that I, that we lived in Seoul, South Korea, I think, was the beginning of my interest in journalism and world affairs. And so, I did, um, I did some work for a local television station there at the time because in Korea you're required to learn English uh, in middle and high school, and so I did some recording of English videos. And uh, so I think that really was what sparked my interest in journalism. So <laughs> when you, I really when you were 10 years old. Be, yeah, 10 <laughs> years old. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, oh, when, yeah. when, uh, when Colonel O'Donnell wants his kids to work, they work, right? <laughs> well, I'm sure as most military family knows, Army Brad, it's not like we're sitting on our laurels. Right. Out of <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. I, I always, if I wanted to buy something in Yongsan, um, and Itaewon, which was the market right outside Yongsan, um, where you could, you know, buy tennis shoes for 10 bucks and, you know, audio cassette recordings for a dollar, you know, you would have to make your own money. So, um, <laughs> I've, I've had a job, I've had a job since I was 10, 10 years old. Wow. I, that was really the only way I could, you know, get free spending money, well, you know, you, not free spending money. I worked for it, but you know what I mean? You know, you, you mentioned, uh, your, your sister, Mary, uh, 
as an army doctor and, and still working at, at uh, Walter Reed. So there was no pressure on you to join the military? There wasn't. Um, I think there, there was certainly pressure for us to do very well in school. Sure. To be respectful of those who serve not only in the military, but all those who serve in public service, you know, who volunteer their time and serve in the government. You know, there was a deep appreciation of science and facts. I think, um, you know, I'm the only one in my family who doesn't have a bachelor in science degree. But um, wow, what a fa- <laughs> Let's talk about some pressure. <laughs> it was the pressure. Yeah. But but luckily with my my youngest sister, Mary. Uh, who's Major Mary O'Donnell, who was actually born in Seoul, South Korea. My parents finally got not only the doctor, but uh, the surgeon. And she's right. the, the chief of, of colorectal surgery now, Walter Reed, and is a real superstar. So we're very proud of her. And, and you know, and I, I hope that having grown up in a military family and now witnessed my sister do multiple deployments, I do have a deep empathy and concern for those families that still have loved ones who are doing these deployments and serving. I know how difficult it is for families. And so I think of them often. I really do. That certainly shines through in your broadcast. And I personally wanted to thank you for your profiles and service segments that you have done. I mean, they're so good. I just finished watching the Memorial Day interview you did with the Joint Chiefs of Staff General, Mark Milley. That was... uh, that, that was very poignant and uh, and moving. How did it feel for you to walk through Arlington? One of the most, oh, I'm almost going to cry. One of the most, you know, profound experiences of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I've traveled the world with uh, presidents and um, defense secretaries. And, you know, I've been to Afghanistan right after 9-11. I've been to Ground Zero in New York. Um, but being in Arlington you know, uh, just days before Memorial Day with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, seeing a father there sitting in his lawn chair reading a book, Mm. I presume sitting next to, you know, his son who was lost because we were in Section 60, which deals with all those lost in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just such a profound sense of gratitude um, for those who, and as Chairman Milley said, you know, those who fight and serve protect our democracy, protect our right to protest, protect our right for a free press, protect our right for a free speech. And that is what makes this country the greatest country in the world. Because we can do what we do in America. Nowhere else in the world do we have that. And that's because of the men and women who serve our country and those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. It's just, and that's why I really wanted to do that story is to remind those who don't have family who serve to remind about the, the, the great sacrifice that those who serve make. Yeah. And the, the conversation you had with the young lady, uh, uh, the widow, mm-hmm. and you said, this has got to be one of the worst, uh, days of your life, Memorial day. And she said, no, it's actually my favorite day because that causes everybody to remember. And I thought that was fantastic. Oh, wasn't that profound? Oh. I know. Extremely profound. Yeah. And, and part of a gold star family. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to ever forget the service. Right. Um, and you don't want to ever forget a loved one who lost their lives um, serving. Of course, she has two little boys. Um, and I thought, you know, Memorial Day, I think most of us think of Memorial Day as the kickoff to summer. But for Memorial Day, 
it's really when we remember those who have fallen right. in service. Well, and um, Yeah, and, and, and I know uh, she feels like we feel here on this program, you know, that we, we're trying to do that all of the time. It's like, you know, what's Memorial Day to you guys? It's Monday. Because we, we want to think about veterans and active duty military every single day of the year. And you just you did such a great job on that. That's uh, That's got to be some, some tough work, too. I have a hero, and I call him Dad. That's my hero. And um, not only for, you know, being a loving father who helped to develop my confidence and my interest in sports and and academia and writing, but also, uh, you know, he's my hero because, you know, here he was drafted and decided that there is no greater job in the world than serving your country. Yeah, And, and he- so I have such respect for my father and all the other dads and fathers out there who do the same thing. Well, and just take a look at your family for proof that uh, uh, a military career makes a <laughs> makes a, a great legacy because uh, you guys are all doing great stuff. And I, I want to tell you too, Nora, uh, exceptional coverage of the uh, George Floyd ceremony that you covered in uh, Minnesota. It was really just a great job. Well, thank you, Randy. And, you know, I think one of the things in, in speaking to historians and uh, those who cover the civil rights movement, they say what's different now than perhaps the 1960s is that those protesting, that, it, that it's much more diverse, that there are young um, white people, there are older white people. Mm-hmm. There, this is sort of a, a, a larger group of people who are demanding action and change and that people be treated equally. And the really interesting thing is that I do attribute this. I mean, in some ways, I think about, you know, the military. We have a large number of minorities who serve in the military. And and while there certainly is discrimination that exists, the code of ethics and the value in the military is um, is strong about treating people in a meritocracy, not yeah. based on, you know, sex, race, religion. And while it certainly happens, there's no doubt there is sexism and racism and other kinds of discrimination it's it is in its leadership the code or at least the values that it should not be tolerated i just had this conversation with chuck rosenberg you know it's it's the 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 person that's in the foxhole next to you i don't care if he's green you don't you don't care if he's green he's he's there for you and that's your brother and you're right. I think the, the military has always led the way uh, in terms of diversity and also acceptance. Yeah. And so I think that's why we saw, you know, for instance, after I had spoken with Chairman Milley, why he, in a very bold statement, when he came forward and apologized for walking through Lafayette Square in his uniform and looking to appear political because the military has to stay out of, right. you know, of, of politics. So, um, you know, it's been one of the, the great pleasures of my life growing up in a military family. And I hope that certainly having a father uh, who served um, not only as a commander, but as a physician and then watching my sister serve that, you know, um, I understand that there are people who, you know, guide their lives by values and also have a clear purpose. I mean, this is sort of an aside, but, you know, as a journalist, I've been reading a lot about given everything that's happening in the world growing sense of unhappiness. 50% of Americans are reporting now they feel unhappy. That's the largest number. And like, wow. you know, and what, you know, what brings us happiness, having a purpose, right? Yes. Having Absolutely. a connection. Yes. And, um, military gives you that certainly whatever your profession 
maybe maybe gives you a purpose, but um, you know that's why we we do those stories like profiles and service to to focus on those people who do great things, and then we also try and end our broadcast on a high note too with people who are giving back to their community. And I know you do the same on your program. I got to believe though, that Nora, you know, when you're rubbing elbows with the joint chiefs of staff, uh, there might be a phone call to dad after that, just to say, Hey dad, uh, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> guess who I talked to today? Yeah. Well, you know, the other really interesting thing is too, is, um, you know, the proximity when people like that, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, you they take his doctor around you. They take your temperature check. You know, you don't get even if I have not been over to the White House uh, since the coronavirus outbreak. But there's been some, you know, if I were to go over there, I would have to take a, a covid test. And sure. so it's interesting. And then just learning too some of the different um prophylactic medicines that those in leadership are taking. You know, hmm. a lot of people are taking vitamin C. Yeah, right. D, zinc, um, and some other things just to make sure make sure you're getting a lot of sleep so that your immunity your is as high as it can be in case you get come in contact with with uh, the virus. You know, you talked about we're talking to Nora O'Donnell here on the National Defense, and Nora, you talked about the young people, and th- there is a, a a palpable difference in their passion right now. And I know I've got, a, I got two daughters that 127 and 131. And I, I, you better be, if they call you, you better be prepared to, to, you know, three hours on the phone. They are, oh, they're on fire. And I think, I, th- I think that's just what, what this is inspiring right now. Is that the sense that you get? Absolutely. You know, um, and you know, the, the great thing is that there is a, a great deal of passion behind civil rights, equal rights, uh, women's rights. Um, and all of those things are, um, are things, you know, in human rights, um, inequality. And I think I, to me, one of the most interesting things though, is whether that will translate, yeah, right? right? Whether that will translate into community action, whether that will translate into meaningful policy change, whether that will translate into uh, increased participation in our democracy through voting, um, whether that will lead to increased a desire to listen and process information, factual information like the news. I mean, make no mistake, America is under assault right. from foreign enemies. Certainly, we know that for those who serve overseas. But we also know, and this is not my opinion, I've spoken to the head of the FBI, the Chinese are trying to steal different types of, of our intellectual property. We have terrorist forces overseas who try and attack our um, men and women who serve. So, you know, our national security is incredibly important. It's, there's asymmetric warfare. It's a different type of warfare that's being fought through cyber attacks through interference in our upcoming 2020 election. And so everyone needs to be on high alert about what that is to make sure that, you know, it is a fair process in 2020. And then also that we know, you know, how other foreign countries are trying to attack us and that we have the best defenses against them. Yeah, and that's really incumbent on our elected officials. I feel strong. And the coronavirus is also an example of that, right? That's right. probably the more immediate way is that how does our federal government and our state government protect us from what is a pandemic. Some of it is inevitable, but there are also things that our government 
our elected leaders are supposed to do to help protect us in, in the event of a pandemic, which is a national security threat. Amen. And, and you know, it's going to be interesting to see the young people that are passionate right now, uh, if they want to hold, you know, elected office and, and what uh, is going to come out of that in terms of leadership. So I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a great thing. I really do. I, I think there's a big change coming uh, for the better and uh, I find it all about it. The only way I know it is because of the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell. So, Nora, stay positive. Absolutely. Test negative. That's, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll Take be, care. We'll be right back here on the National Defense. You know, you don't have to be a five-star general to be involved with the National Defense. You can subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to the National Defense. The National Defense is written and hosted by me, Randy Miller, and executive produced by Nate Heron. Be sure to visit us online at thenationaldefense.com.